You are now listening to the March 4th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Psalms, This is My Song, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Psalms, This is My Song. Hello, this is Terry with Psalm, This is My Song, a time in which we confess our hearts to the Lord. Last time, we shared that the wisdom we must seek is not based on worldly values, but the knowledge of our weakness and vulnerability, and how great and how wonderful is our God. Once we realize this great and awesome God, we naturally have a fearful and respectful heart about Him. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7, the verse that we all know well, says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And Proverbs chapter 9 Verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. But what does it mean to fear the Lord? It is actually somewhat difficult to define what it means. The definition from a dictionary says, It is an unpleasant emotion caused by a belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or a threat. But a closer meaning of the word fear in Proverbs is more like revering with utmost respect. In this context, it seems true that we fear God, but does that necessarily mean that we have the necessary godly knowledge and wisdom? Perhaps it is like the clouds of the sky. We can see them, but we cannot touch them. So then, the fear of the Lord is something that is ideal, but not tangible. A lot of times, we think fearing God is lowering our heads to Him, bowing to Him, or raising Him high above. But isn't there a more substantial content when it comes to fearing God rather than these intangible things? Thankfully, there are a few places in the Bible that show us the substantial reality of fearing God. The first is from Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 and 19. Now it shall come about, when He sits on the throne of His kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. God told the people of Israel that when they appoint a king, make the king to write the words of the law, in other words, the words of God, himself and keep them with him to obey them all his life. And that is how he will learn to fear God. Do you want to fear God? Then keeping God's word with you and writing them is how we can learn to fear God. And people who learn to fear God in such a way show how they fear God in their lives. What are they like? They are in Psalm 112, which we will share today. Psalm 112 verse 1 starts like this. Praise the Lord! How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Psalm 112 is a psalm of confession of a man who fears the Lord and finds delight in doing so. And it describes how a God-fearing person behaves. People who fear the Lord are described as people who are honest, generous, compassionate, not shaken, not afraid of evil tidings, steadfast, and trusting in the Lord, and those whose hearts are upheld, having trust in the Lord, and those who give freely to the poor rather than seek to keep riches to themselves. It all makes sense. All these things and behaviors are what God had said in the Bible for us to do. So the true definition of fearing the Lord is reading the word of God and obeying his words. I hope we all have a heart that fears God. It would not just be a simple feeling, but would be a tangible display of living the way of life. I hope that we may demonstrate our fear of God by how we continue in God's word. May our lives be blessed as we are obedient to Him. We will conclude today's episode of Psalms, This is My Song, by reading Psalm 112. Praise the Lord! How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments! His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. 
He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment, for he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries. He has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. The wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is, You Need Biblical Giving. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with. Let me invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 10. Feel free to use table of contents if you need to. It's the second gospel, second book of the New Testament, Mark chapter 10. And as you're turning there, I want to welcome those of you in Arlington and Montgomery County and Loudoun and Prince William, as well as others online. It's really good to gather together around God's Word across our city. What if God has designed your heart to be glad, not in getting, but in giving? Specifically, what if God has designed your heart to be glad, not in getting more money and possessions, but in giving more money and possessions? What if gladness in your heart is actually dependent on giving in your life? What if more stuff is not the way to happiness? What if more sacrifice is actually the way to happiness. If that was true, it would drastically change the way we live in this world, wouldn't it? The way we live in this city. So is it true? Has God designed your heart right where you are sitting to be more glad in giving than in getting. That's certainly the way Jesus, God in the flesh, saw it. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. says he was setting out on his journey, and a man who we soon find out was very rich ran up and knelt before him and asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like picture the scene. This guy runs to Jesus. He bows down before him. He's young, influential, rich, and eager. This is what you call a prime prospect. Just imagine if this rich, influential guy becomes a follower of Jesus, we can put him on the circuit. He'll start sharing his story. Think of all he can do. And all that can happen with all of his riches, we have to get this guy in. So what does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Jesus is saying, obey the commands, the word of God. That's the way to life. And the man said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth, which sets up Jesus to go straight for the heart. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Huh. No. Hey, man, just pray a prayer and say these words, and you are in. No. Jesus says what we saw last week. Die to yourself and all your possessions and do whatever I say. And in what has to be the classic example of letting the big fish get away, Verse 22 says, disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's think about what just happened. This man wants life. He wants eternal life. That's what he's after. 
He wants life now and life that lasts forever. He wants what we all want. And Jesus, God in the flesh, looks at him in love. Jesus wants him to have eternal life. Don't miss this word right here. When Jesus gives what seem like hard commands to us, they are always, always, always driven by love. The picture in Mark 10 is crystal clear. Jesus loves rich people. He loves rich people enough to tell them the truth. And he wants their good. Don't miss the point here. Look at Jesus' words. He's not calling this man away from pleasure. He's calling him to pleasure, eternal pleasure. Sell all that you have. Give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Like at first glance, this command seems like a call to sacrifice, which in obvious ways it is, but not ultimately, right? What is Jesus calling him to? To treasure in heaven. Which leads Jesus to, verse 23, look around and say to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, exclamation point. Like, that verse should reverberate in our ears in this gathering. Because this is talking about us. We are those who have wealth. Like, unless you're visiting today from another country, all of us live and one of the wealthiest countries to ever exist in the history of the world. Now, obviously, there are different degrees of wealth among us. And we may not always feel wealthy, oftentimes because we can always think of someone who's more wealthy. But if we have clean water and sufficient food and clothes and a roof over our heads at night and access to medicine and education and a mode of transportation, even if it's public, then relative to billions of people in the world, we are wealthy. I wrote a foreword years ago for a book called When Helping Hurts by two economics professors, Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert, followers of Jesus, and they write about present-day Americans saying, by any measure, we are the richest people ever to walk on planet Earth. And I don't mention that to make us feel guilty, but simply to open our eyes to the reality that those who have wealth are us. And Jesus just said it is difficult for us to enter the kingdom of God. It's difficult to get to God's kingdom from Fairfax County, Loudoun County, Prince William County, Arlington County, County, Montgomery County. Jesus just said it's hard to get to heaven from the capital of one of the most affluent countries in the history of the world. And let's just be honest. Most people in our culture and in the church just don't believe Jesus on this one. In our minds, we only think of wealth and money and possessions as blessings. But Jesus just said these things can be barriers to the kingdom of God. Do we believe Jesus here? Now, as soon as I ask that, I want to state clearly, the Bible never teaches that wealth or money or possessions are inherently evil. But Jesus is clearly warning us here. In one of the many places where God warns us in his word. Turn me over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I want you to see this warning. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. And as you're turning, I just want to ask you to prepare your heart and mind. Because what you're about to hear is so different than the way we are wired to think and feel. It goes totally against the grain 
of every message this world is selling you and me. So God help us to hear what you are saying to us right now. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Are we hearing this? Those who desire to be right. This is just the desire for it. Even those who have it. Those who desire more stuff fall into temptation, into a snare. It's a trap, the Bible says. The desire for more and newer and nicer and better. Well, you jump down to verse 17 in this same chapter, right after the Bible says, fight the good fight of the faith. War against this desire in your heart for money and possessions and comfort in this world. But that doesn't mean there won't be rich people. Again, we live in this country. As long as God tells us to stay in this country, which, again, as we talked about last week, is negotiable for every follower of Jesus. But verse 17, hear God's word to us. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Oh, this is so good. So here's God's five-part plan for rich people. One, Cultivate humility for the glory of God. Charge them. Don't be haughty. Don't be prideful. Realize every good thing you have comes from God and belongs to God. In other words, your riches, all the good things that you have, are not yours. God owns them. You're the manager. So manage them. Steward them for the owner's purposes, for the owner's glory. Whatever God brings God the most glory among all the nations, use your wealth for that. Why have we been given wealth? We have been given wealth for the spread of God's worldwide worship. That's why we have it. So cultivate humility for the glory of God. Second, set your hope on the goodness of God. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Don't think you're secure because you have stuff. You're secure because you have God. And if you don't have God and you have all the stuff in the world, you are very insecure. God loves you and us so much that even though we have sinned against God. He has come to us in the person of Jesus. He has died on a cross, risen from the grave, so that anyone, anywhere who trusts in Jesus will be forgiven, healed, redeemed, crowned, and satisfied with the goodness of God for all of eternity. We invite you, put your trust in Jesus. And when you do, and for all who have, let's live different than the rest of this world. We have not set our hope on riches. We've set our hope on God, which frees us from running after all the stuff this world offers, which leads us back to verse, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18, where God's plan for the rich continues. Number three. Give generously. This is God saying they are to do good. 
Be rich in what? In good works. Be generous. Be ready to share. At which point, many people may ask, okay, so how, how much am I supposed to give? But that question misses the point. God is saying, give generously. Which means we don't ask, how much am I supposed to give? We ask, how much can I possibly give? If your heart is designed by God to be glad in giving, then give generously for your good, for others' good, and for God's glory. Win, win, win. People say, okay, what does that mean to tithe? And we don't have time to do a whole Old Testament study this morning, but to summarize, and keep in mind that Israel was an entire nation when you read Leviticus 27:30, you see that God commanded that a tithe, a tenth, 10% of all the produce of one's land and flocks should be given to the Lord. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 22 and 23, we see that another tithe was taken to support festivals and celebrations among God's people. So that was a second tithe, a second 10%. Then when you get to Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 28 and 29, in the third year, another tithe was taken, another tenth that would be distributed to the poor, the marginalized, strangers, the fatherless, and widows. So when you add all of that up for the people of God in the Old Testament, you actually had two tithes given every year, about 20% of their income, then another tithe given every three years. So the average total came to about 23% per year. And even that wasn't the sum of their giving. That was only a part. On top of the tithes, they had first fruit offerings and free will offerings. At one point in Exodus chapter 36, they were giving so generously that Moses had to tell them to stop giving. So with that background in the Old Testament, we turn the pages into the New Testament, and we don't see a specific command to tithe. Instead, we see example after example of going above and beyond a tithe. As soon as the church starts, Acts 2.45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Acts 4.34, there was not a needy person among them for as many words were owners of lands or houses. They sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. In other words, once we turn the pages into the New Testament, a new covenant, Jesus has come, he's died on the cross, he's risen from the grave, the Spirit of God now lives in his people. We don't see less giving, we see more. So if you're looking for what the Bible says about how much we give specifically, the way I would describe it is, it seems like when it comes to giving generously, the tithe is the floor of Christian giving. And I say it seems like, because as I mentioned, we don't have a specific command, but we do have a picture that makes it seem like the tithe, giving a tenth of your income, is not the ceiling of Christian giving. It's more like the floor, where it starts. And then based on what we see in the Bible, it sure seems like the sky is the limit of Christian giving. God does not limit how much your heart can be glad in giving. Picture it this way. Remember what 1 Timothy 6 said about contentment? If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. What would happen if we all, as followers of Jesus, decided to set a line of contentment in our lives from which we tithe, again, as the floor of our giving, and then we said, Anything, everything else God gives above that, I'm free to give away. In other words, what if we decided that a raise in income doesn't have to necessitate a raise in our standard of living? What if we decided that a raise in income is an opportunity to raise our standard of giving? 
This is John Wesley in church history saying, Christians should give all away but the plain necessities of life. That is, plain, wholesome food, clean clothes, and enough to carry on one's business. Any Christian who takes for himself anything more than the plain necessities of life lives in an open, habitual denial of the Lord, and he has gained both riches and hellfire. Well, that's strong language. But he backed it up with his life. In 1731, Wesley began to limit his expenses so he would have more money to give away. He records how one year his income was 30 pounds, his living expenses around 27, 28, so he had two or three pounds to give away. The next year his income doubled, but he still lived on 28 pounds. He now gave 32 pounds away. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds. Again, he lived on 28, giving 62 away. The fourth year, he made 120 pounds. He continued to live on 28 and gave 92 pounds away to the poor. Wesley continued this practice throughout his life. Even when his income rose into the thousands of pounds, he lived simply and quickly gave away his surplus money. One year, his income was slightly over 1,400 pounds. He gave away all but around 30. He was afraid of laying up treasures on earth. So the money went out as quickly as it came in. When he died in 1791, the only money mentioned in his will was the miscellaneous coins found in his pockets and dresser drawers. Most of the 30,000 pounds he had earned in his lifetime, he had given away. That is a weird way to live in this world. Why did he do that? I suppose it's because he believed the Bible. That godliness with contentment is great gain. And he believed God when God said, give generously. What if we did this? In our church family, we have a 20 plus million dollar budget. If we were actually giving the way God is calling us to give, our budget would easily be two, three times that as a church. Just dream of all we can do in our city and around the world for the spread of the gospel and the glory of our God and the good of our hearts. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, Give generously and invest eternally. Store up treasure for yourself as a good foundation for the future. Let's just be honest. What we're talking about here sounds extreme, radical, crazy in this world. But that's kind of the point, isn't it? When we follow a king who said, do not lay up for yourselves treasure in this world. Where moth and wrath destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasure in another world. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So the question is, which world are you living for? Imagine with me for a moment that your home is in Australia. We have a family in our church group from Australia. Imagine you come to the United States for just one month where you live in a hotel room that has everything you need. And imagine there's a rule that you can only carry one thing back with you to Australia on your flight home. The only thing you can carry is money. So you can earn, and you actually have a lot of opportunities to earn money in America. You can even send deposits back to the bank in Australia. But that's all for the month you're here. So here's my question for you. If that were the case, would you take any money you make and start buying expensive furnishings and extravagant wall hangings to put up in your hotel room? Would you focus all your time on making that hotel room as great as possible? I'm guessing you wouldn't. Why not? Because your time here is so short. 
You know you can't take any of those things with you. It's just a hotel room for a month. So if you're wise, yes, you'll cover your needs here, but you won't invest money into your hotel room when you can send it home. I give you, Christian, a picture of your life in this world. You're only here for a little while. 70, 80, 90 years? That's not very long when you think about 10 billion years. And eternity will have just started. And during these short days here, you're bombarded with the temporary. Get stuff here in this world. Make yourself comfortable here in this hotel. But God, who knows all things and knows what's best for you and me, never tells us this. Never. In fact, he tells us the opposite. He says, fix your eyes on another home. Don't store up treasure here. It won't last. You can't take it with you. Store up treasure there. That's where it will last. And brothers and sisters, this is, we're in a temporary hotel room right now. And in an instant, you and I are going to stand before God to give an account for how we have spent the time and the money and the gifts and the resources we had here. And when that moment comes, we will not wish that we had acquired more stuff or lived more comfortably in the hotel room. We will wish we had given more of our lives and the abundance of our resources, making them count for the spread of his glory in ways that will last in our forever home for all of eternity. Invest eternally. And last thing, live truly. God says, I'm telling you this so that you may take hold of that which is truly life. Yes, yes, this is truly life. Can I make the connection here with what we talked about in biblical discipleship last week? This is what it means to follow Jesus. If we are not giving generously, then we are not following Jesus. And we're missing out on life. So yes, as strange and as countercultural as it may seem, you need biblical giving. You need a church where we are calling one another to give generously and sacrificially. It's reminding one another week in and week out, we're just in a hotel room here. So don't, don't live it up in the hotel room. Let's start living for treasure in heaven that will last forever. And like we want life right now, that which is truly life on this earth. Church family, let's take God at his word on this one. Let's give like we have never given before in ways that resound to God's glory all across our city and among the nations and in ways that make our hearts glad. When, when, when God loves us so much enough to tell us the truth about giving. Will you bow your heads with me? All across this room and other locations. All of this, all of this starts with trusting Jesus with your life. Trusting Jesus as Lord over everything in your life. And so I want to ask you right where you're sitting right now, have you put your trust in Jesus as Lord over your entire life, including your possessions? And maybe that's altogether new for you and Today, for the first time, I want to invite you to say in your heart to Jesus right now, yes, I trust you as Lord of my life to forgive me my sins and to 
lead my life for what is good for me, glorifying to you. I invite you to trust in Jesus. Don't walk away from here sorrowful, holding on to whatever this world is offering you, turning your back on the one who made this world and who alone knows how to satisfy you. And for every follower of Jesus in this room, can I just voice a prayer for us? God, help us. God, help me. God, help us all to trust your word, to believe your word. And in this materialistic world and materialistic culture to fight the good fight of faith. God, we pray that you would help us to be humble before you, to see ourselves as managers, not owners of anything. You would keep us from looking to 401ks and savings accounts and houses and cars for security, but to look to you for our certainty, security, comfort, hope. And God, we pray that by your Spirit, you would lead us as a church family in the days ahead to give generously and invest eternally and live truly. Even as I pray that, I just want to give you a moment before we do anything else. What does this need to look like in your life? Just spend a moment before God. What would change if you were following this five-fold plan that God just gave us in his word? Take just a moment to think about that before God. Oh, God, help us not just to hear your word today, but to do what it says and to experience life according to your good design for us. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. There's nothing worth more that will ever come close. Nothing can compare. You're our living hope Your presence I've tasted and seen Of the sweetest of loves Where my heart becomes free And my shame is undone Your presence, Lord Holy Spirit, you are welcome here Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere Your glory, God, is what our hearts long Your presence
You're now with Unity in Christ, powered by Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to hear from you. If you have any comments or testimony that you want to share with us, please email it to askhsgm at gmail.com. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. But they don't, in reality. You know, and God doesn't miss a beat. He declares in Jude, as we just read, but also here that black darkness has been reserved. They're going to get their up and comings. You don't need to be searching them out. Just stay away from them. God will take care of them. He says in our passage, verse 17, these are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom, speaking of these false teachers, the black darkness has been reserved. It has already been reserved and that reservation still is there. That's the tense of the Greek word. Black darkness. You remember we see the context of this chapter is judgment. It's judgment, isn't it? Look back in verse 9 of chapter 2. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Especially those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. Black darkness has been reserved. Now, hell is described in two ways, as this fire that isn't quenched, right? And black darkness. It is reserved for them. Just like God had destroyed the entire earth with the flood, He had punished the angels that had sinned back in Noah's time, and He had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, reducing it to ashes. Their judgment is sure. Whereas... We're going to see they have turned away from Jesus. They have known the truth of Jesus as Lord and Savior. They haven't been saved, but they've known the truth, and they have turned away like a dog that returns to his own vomit, one who goes back to their nature, and thus hell is reserved for them. They give the appearance that you're going to be spiritually fed in Jesus. You get a show, but yet when all is said and done, it's really nothing to quench your spiritual thirst to grow you in Jesus, but yet you feel as though you have been. There are frauds. They're deceptively appearing to overwhelmingly nourish, but yet they do not, and they are on their way to hell. Now notice in verse 18 we have an explanation concerning these two illustrations. Notice he says in verse 18, for he's explaining, he's going to explain some real realities concerning these illustrations. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves to corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. He's explaining from his illustrations, springs without water, mist driven by a storm on these people, a spot in hell reserved for them. And he says, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice. This is how you can spot them. This is how you can spot them. They continually, habitually speak forth arrogant words of vanity, and they entice. 
The term arrogant speaks of an excessive weight or size, something that is puffed up excessively. Vanity speaks of that which is empty. They have inflated speech that comes forth out of their mouths, which is ultimately empty, springs without water. This is how you can spot false teachers. They do a lot of talking about the Bible, about Jesus, biblical stuff, but you actually never get fed. They can talk concepts spiritually all day long that are true, but you never get corrected, trained, reproved in the Word of God. You never get fed. You can go to your average little 34-minute evangelical pep talk these days and spot this. Believers, true believers, being held captive, being led astray. Those who are unstable in their walk with Jesus, being led astray, thinking that they are being fed. These teachers blow out of their mouths these arrogant spiritual concepts with no reality underneath. They speak spiritually seductive words molded to manipulate you. Molded to make you think you're getting fed when you're not. You think you got fed. And if you talk to people that are going and placing themselves under these type of people, they'll say, man, I was really fed. And if you listen to what they said, there was nothing there. It was empty. It was empty. Little spiritual ditties about following Jesus rather than the truth of God training and convicting us and correcting us and teaching us. Notice they provide what appears to be a grand spiritual meal, which is actually nothing. And notice the term here, they entice, they entice. The word speaks of luring or literally baiting. They put bait out for you. Just like someone who is catching an animal in a trap or fishing for something, there's bait. They have a reason what they're doing. They're trying to catch you. We saw the entice and stable souls baiting them, right, or luring them, same word. They deliberately mold their words to lure you into following them and their teaching and thus providing them wicked gain, power, money, lust, position, whatever they get, the wages of unrighteousness from you. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice, now notice he says, in two spheres, by or in, by fleshly desires, by sensuality. Here's what you can spot in their teaching. It's empty, but it seems like it's a lot, but it's empty. But they use certain things to entice you. Now you think by fleshly desires, he's talking about immorality and sexual things. Well, probably not specifically. Because these people want freedom from sin. They promise them freedom from sin. These are believers who don't want to go that way anymore. But they barely escaped the error they used to live in before Christ. They lure by fleshly desires. Fleshly desires. Now what is he talking about here? There are a lot of passages about fleshly desires, and a lot do have to do with immorality, no doubt about that. Let's take a look at a few. Look back at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. 1 Peter 1, 14. This is speaking to those who have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust or desires. When we see the word desires or lust, it's the same basic word, which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, behold yourself in all your behavior. And he goes on saying, be holy because he is holy, right? The command. You see, before we were saved, we used to live by our desires. Certainly that would manifest in immorality, things like that, but we lived by our will. They were our fleshly desires. Not always gross immorality. Notice now in 1 Peter chapter 4, go up a little farther in 1 Peter chapter 4. Certainly it will manifest in those things, and we see that. But underneath it, it's just God's will or your will, right? 1 Peter 4, therefore, verse 1, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Verse 2 in the explanation. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts or desires of man, but for the will of God. And we know that certainly our desires come forth in our deeds, right? The deeds of the flesh are evident. You can look at Galatians chapter 5. When the Apostle Paul is talking to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, he says they're still fleshly. 
Well, how were they fleshly? Well, one of the ways they were fleshly was they were focused on people and not on Christ. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of this. They were elevating. They were prideful. That's fleshly. Sometimes false teachers appeal to your pride. Fleshly desires. So then our fleshly lusts have to do with how we used to think before we were redeemed. And it can be manifest in a myriad of ways. Certainly gross immorality, absolutely. But also pride, self-sufficiency, justified anger, idolatry, worldly wisdom, leaning on our own understanding. Those things can be peppered into those messages to make you follow your desires. But think you're following Jesus. Before we came to Christ, we were self-reliant. We were not yielding to Christ. We were not depending upon His grace. We were not functioning by His power. And they will tempt you to do the same. But have the stamp on it, you're following Jesus. There are those who will tickle your ears with what you want to hear. Turn to Second Timothy chapter 4. They will make your ears tingle with what you and your flesh wants to hear. And they'll... Put it in a way that makes you feel as though you're following Jesus and doing the right thing. That spring is abundantly being provided, but there's nothing there. Second Timothy chapter 4. In Paul's last words, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. When pastors don't do that, they are sinning against God. And this solemn charge, by the way, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. In our flesh, we don't want to be reproved. We want something that makes us feel good about Jesus, right? That's fleshly desires, rather than being reproved and built up, right? Reprove, he says here, and rebuke and exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure. They can't sit under sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers, what? In accordance to their own desires. They're not accumulating teachers that they can go out and just do gross immorality. It's according to their desires. And they will turn their ears from the truth aside to myths or stories. Stories. Go to churches these days, all you hear stories all day long. And they make you feel good about Jesus. But it's stories. It doesn't feed you at all. You leave and there's nothing ultimately spiritually that has worked in your heart. What do these people look like in real time? I can think of some family radio broadcasts that exemplify this pretty well. They claim to be ministries of the Lord. They speak the Bible verse here and there. But ultimately the wisdom they give to the resolution of your spiritual and relational problems is worldly wisdom that applies to your flesh. Fleshly desires. There are those who appeal to your intellect on the extreme reform side. They appeal to your desires to think and figure things out. There are those who appeal to your fleshly desire to be healed physically if you're going through certain situations. There are those who entice you to look for an experience in Jesus. That's your fleshly desire, by the way. A worship experience. A word from God apart from God's word, by the way. What does it look like in the church? You hear a lot about Jesus as Lord and Savior. You hear a lot about Christianity, morality, but you're never fed the word of God that convicts your personal sin. You can go to church and be in your own desires, living your life your own way, and still be okay with Jesus. There are springs without water who lure you in your flesh to think you're okay when you're not. The bait these false teachers lay pulls on your own desires to get out of a difficult situation, to ease the pressure, to fulfill your needs. They quote it in a biblical way. They bait and lay the trap based on your own desires. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires. And then he knows he says by sensuality. They bait their traps also in the context of sensuality. And we wonder, what does that mean in this context? Well, obviously it's not gross immorality because they're promising you freedom from sin. 
Notice back in verse 2, and many will follow their sensuality. That's their brand of sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. We saw this term sensuality speaks of licentiousness or without restraint. We know in Jude verse 4 that many have crept in unnoticed, even turning the grace of God into licentiousness by using God's grace to give you a license to be sinful. It's okay, right? It's a license to not be obedient to God's word in certain areas. That's what they do. They secretly and subtly turn God's grace, the forgiveness of sins, into a license to be disobedient. It's subtle. Instead of the word of God convicting, correcting, training in righteousness, these false teachers allow things in the way they teach for you to not completely submit and yield to Christ. You see, there are churches and pastors who do not dress sin. They make you feel good about Jesus with all that stuff rather than the Word of God, which should convict. And if you're willing to hear the conviction, correct you and train you in righteousness. Verse 18, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. And notice... What they also do, look at verse 18. He says, notice who this is that he's speaking of. He says, those, end of verse 18, who barely escape from the ones who live in error. That's who is being enticed. Now, in context, we know earlier it's speaking of false teachers among you. But the people that are being enticed are unstable souls, but also they're described this way. Those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Well, the ones who dwell in error, that's a statement concerning those who are not saved. That's their life. They live in the context of error. That's really it. And they have barely escaped that through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. They're just barely there. They've come to faith in Jesus Christ, but their walk is not much of a walk. They've been forgiven, but they barely escaped.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.